Hi and welcome to Gerard Daughter's Climate Podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change, development, sustainability and many more. Today's guest is Pankaj Bhatia. Pankaj is a global director of GHG Protocols and deputy director of the Climate Program at the World Resources Institute. He is one of the leading experts on the GHG Protocol standards and tools, particularly in the areas of corporate Scope 3 mitigation action and city accounting. He launched and led the 3-year global process that involved more than 2300 stakeholders to develop the new global GHG protocol Scope 3 and product standards released in October 2011. Currently, he is leading the GHG protocol team working to develop new global standards in the land sector which are expected to be released for 2022. In addition, he also oversees and supports WRI's national climate action teams. looking across all its international offices in Brazil, China, Ethiopia, India, Indonesia and Mexico. I'm Kiti Mayan and I'll be your host for today. Hi Pankaj, thank you so very much for coming on our show. I'm going to get started by asking you this, what was your starting point on your climate change journey? Yep, I started my work in the climate change area uh, when I was working at Terry and one of the first uh, projects that i got involved in was focused on energy efficiency in india's appliance sector and technology transfer and this was in i think early to late 1990s and this particular piece of work included undertaking research and simulation modeling using some of the models that were provided by lawrence berkeley national lab and the application of that model was done to analyze the scope for energy efficiency improvements in the indian refrigerators technology and based on that research it was actually one of my first paper peer reviewed paper that i published in the ashray journal a very good journal that present state of research on heating refrigeration and cooling industry and that particular paper was very well received and it was also quite helpful in the conversations that we had with bureau of indian standard to revise the energy efficiency energy consumption standard for india's refrigerator so that was my starting point for my climate change journey we'd love to learn more about your role in developing the ghg protocol scope 3 and product standard Can you take us through the process, especially given that there were so many stakeholders involved? Yes. So the greenhouse gas protocol initiative itself was established in 1998. This is a initiative co-convened by WRI and uh, WBCSD. And the very first standard that we published was in 2001. I joined WRI in 2001, and I joined the greenhouse gas protocol team itself. I worked on the very first standard that was published in 2001 not many people perhaps seen that copy that was published and then very quickly we started the process to revise it because it also resulted in some very important feedback that led to another process to revise the very first standard and then we published a revised standard of GHG protocol corporate accounting and reporting in 2004 that was the standard where we introduced the concepts of scope 1 2 and 3 and then over a period of time 
as the GHG protocol corporate standard was used, there was an increasing demand for more guidance and more specification for companies on how to undertake both scope three accounting and product lifecycle accounting. In GHG protocol, we have a very methodical approach in first of all, establishing the need for a new global standard and thereafter in planning and conducting the process to develop these standards. We have a secretariat here consisting of greenhouse gas protocol team members from both WRI and WBCST. Usually the work to develop a new standard starts with a global survey to understand what are the specific accounting issues that business or other stakeholders are grappling with that do not have a commonly accepted approaches to account for GHGM information in a credible way. So this is how we started the work on scope three and product lifecycle standard. We did a global survey and we received very good feedback and very overwhelming response, establishing the need for developing these two new global standard. Then we established a process which involves convening a few key stakeholder groups who work together to develop these standards. Uh, these groups in generally include a technical working group or a number of technical working groups, an advisory committee or steering committee, a review group, and a pilot testing group. So hundreds of stakeholders worldwide are involved in these processes. I was leading the overall convening and the team that was working on these standards from WRI, but it's an integrated team across WRI and WBCSD. And my role was to help support the team and lead the team in developing these standards over a period of, I think, three to four years. Wow. It sounds like a monumental task you, you undertook, really speaking. I mean, to get feedback, process that, and come together with something that actually is standardized in that sense, right? I think it sounds like a monumental task, really. It is a monumental task in many ways. First of all, I think the process itself is very comprehensive and multi-layered process. And then for important accounting issues, we have to bring stakeholders to a common view to the extent possible, if even a consensus, because it's a voluntary standard. And the success of this standard depends on stakeholders accepting it and using it. And so we have to make sure that particularly the business community, but also the civil society groups and NGOs would have a certain viewpoint and expectation from business. And business would also have a business viewpoint in place because they also are looking for practical solutions and solutions that will help them in incentivizing a continued growth in the business as well as opportunities. So we have to ensure that the standard is going to be useful in terms of ensuring environmental integrity, in terms of ensuring transparency, clarity, consistency, and accuracy of the information. And at the same time, it will be useful in driving positive change in the business sector. So it sounds brilliant. I think the work that you have obviously has had impact. And I, I really feel that if four years, wow, Pankaj, I'm a bit astounded by that. But it sounds really, really like, all sorts of efforts have gone in to deliver something that is you know, a world-class product, really, in that sense. So I want to talk a little bit about product standard. This was released in 2011, and was envisioned as enabling companies to measure emissions expended for an individual product. And it covered materials, manufacturing, use, and disposal. Now, sometime ago in June 2020, 
Unilever announced it would begin rolling out carbon labels on all 70,000 of its products. Now, do you think that the product stand was way ahead of its time or companies actually lagging behind in the actions they need to take? It could be both in parts. In fact, generally, most of our standards, when we design them, are not just looking at the current business practice, but is also looking at what we might want to see as the best business practice in the future. And so mm -hmm. in some sense, almost all of our standards will have some such innovation that will be futuristic and that would have certain expectations about the new business approach that not many companies might be following at that particular time. So for example, when the first greenhouse gas protocol standard that I mentioned was published in 2001 and the revised edition yeah. in 2004, we introduced the concepts of indirect em emissions and the concepts of scope two and scope three, which was not known at all. I don't think any company was really practicing that in their GHG accounting or reporting. And so that was much way ahead of what the practice was at that time. And now, as you can see, scope three is becoming a common practice. So it took about 10 to 15 years since the first publication. So I'm not surprised also with respect to product lifecycle standard that it takes about 10 years for a major company like uh, Unilever to come up with such a comprehensive product labeling program. And so we were definitely way ahead. And also the companies also, I think, need time to fully adopt it mm. across all their product portfolio because it is, for many companies, it is a huge commitment and they are producing a number of different variety of products. So before they are able to introduce such a carbon labeling program, they have to make sure that they are able to collect accurate and complete information from their suppliers, for example. So it takes some time to implement it fully. Thank you for that. Can you talk about emissions inventory, please? How do cities create actionable climate plans using national data? And can you cite a few examples of this, please? Yes. So emissions inventory can be done in various ways and at various levels for uh, by different actors. So in mm -hmm. the context of countries, we have national inventories and there are rules that are pr provided by IPCC that countries follow, uh, UNFCC and IPCC methodologies at the national level. But there are not, not so much standardized approaches for accounting for city level information. So we have also published a global protocol for cities. It's called GPC. It's, it's a standard on accounting and reporting greenhouse gas information for cities. And that is being used by hundreds of cities all over the world. And in fact, this particular standard was published in close collaboration with the ICLE and C40 initiatives, as well as UN Global mm -hmm. Habitat Center, so a number of important players in this sector. And they have played a tremendous role in ensuring the uptake and adoption of the global protocol for cities. Usually the approach that is offered here follows the same GHG protocol fundamental framework of, of scope one, two, and three, direct and indirect emissions. And in many cases, cities would have data 
for quantifying their direct and indirect impacts, particularly I think in developed countries, the data quality and information is more accessible, but it is not such a case in many developing countries. And so we are also now in the final stages of developing a online database called Data Portal. It has been developed in collaboration with the global convenient of Mayor's GCOM uh, that will provide a database that cities can utilize. If they don't have city level data, then it offers them a methodology so that they can customize based on national level data. They can customize and create inventories using sectoral data sets at the national level for electricity sector, fuel consumption, waste, fuel economy numbers for transport, energy use intensities, etc. Such sector level data at the national level can be customized to downscale it to make it useful for the cities. And so that will allow them to create a general baseline or footprint of their emissions and at least begin an initial climate plan to prioritize mitigation steps in important sectors. I think in terms of examples, we have examples both in developed and developing countries. I would like to highlight, for example, Denmark. They are one of the prime examples where national government provides cities with most of the necessary data for an inventory and was the basis for our GCOM data portal online tool. Then in India, there are some number of cities like Indore, Bhopal, Ujjain, Gawalier, Jabalpur, Sagar, and Satna who are using the data that was collected through the data portal. So customizing the national level data to do a city level inventory and climate action planning. And then also in Chile and Colombia also, there are some efforts, ongoing efforts to customize national level data into city level information. I find very interesting that for India, you cited what I would assume would be second tier cities. My immediate reaction would be, well, the metros, are are they not doing it? Or I know you're giving us examples, but when you cited second-tier cities, my immediate assumption is, oh, they are doing it, but not metros. But I'm assuming the metros are also involved in this, using your portal to figure out where they are in terms of emissions. I think the reason uh, second-tier cities actually are more relevant in this context is because they are the ones who do not usually have either resources or information the first year cities in many cases would already have the, the systems in place to get information and they mm-hmm. will have more data available. So in, in many cases, the data portal database would be much more useful for second tier cities, I think. That clarifies it. So by 2020, almost all developed countries are expected to have peaked. Am I correct in assuming this? And if so, uh, global GHG emissions are still rising, though, right? So can you tell us more you know, about what needs to be done, especially by the biggest emitters? So it's quite surprising that global energy-related emissions already plateaued in 2019, according to the most mm. recent data from International Energy Agency. And they remain unchanged at 33 gigatons per year from the year before. And this happened despite the world economy expanding by 2.9% and was due primarily to declining electricity generation from advanced countries, the growth of renewable energy, particularly wind and solar, and switch from coal to natural gas. Some experts are predicting that 2019 could be the peak year for global CO2 emissions, also given the COVID impact on energy consumption. 
CO2 emissions declined significantly during the height of the lockdowns and the pandemic could have accelerated the global oil demand to peak or now by several years. WRI research indicates that the large majority of developed countries as well as some developing countries have already peaked or have a commitment to peak by 2020. About 53 countries, including the US, most of the EU countries, Korea, Japan, Australia, China is committed to peak emissions by 2030, but we think it may happen even earlier. Right. But nevertheless, the number of countries peaking and the emissions level at which they are peaking is insufficient to limit warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade. Actually, we think it will be critical that some of the top emitting countries in the order of China, US and India would need to make and achieve commitments to peak their emissions as soon as possible and to peak at lower emission level and to commit to a significant rate of emission decline after peaking if we have to achieve the 1.5 degree goal. Pankaj, having read all news reports about this, what you are talking about seems very impossible to me. I mean, we're talking about the way countries have been emitting and the way COVID, of course, has played some role, definitely, like kind of bringing this down. But I mean, I fear for a world, you know, 10 years from now, it's going to be hotter, it's going to be changed, really speaking. Do you agree with me? I think we perhaps can believe in the possibility of human potential and potential of countries' leaders' leadership to turn the tide. I would assume that it is still possible. And also Mm -hmm. some of the technology breakthroughs means who would have imagined just a few years back that renewable energy technology prices will come down so much that it will become so competitive with coal itself, a coal which was known to be the cheapest fuel available and in abundance. And now renewable energy is, is very competitive in all places. And so that was a unexpected transformative change that helped us a lot. Mm -hmm. And I would also still pin my hopes uh, on some other technological breakthroughs that we could expect to see. Then some societal breakthroughs also, I think, could happen either because of the opportunity that COVID has provided that has resulted in, I think, some change in the mindset about certain ways of working and also because of the opportunity through the economic recovery plans that the various country governments are planning. So so let's hope that there is still going to be a possibility for us to achieve the goal that we have in the Paris Agreement. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. So Paris Agreement also brings me to COP. And now COP has been rescheduled to 2021 in Glasgow. What are your expectations, if any at all? Yes, COP26 is a key moment for the world to get on track to the transformation we need to achieve by 2030. By Glasgow, we need to see strengthened substantially climate commitments under Paris, along with important progress on key international fronts, including scaling up financial flows, private and public, and shifting finance from grey to green. I think financing is an extremely important topic that needs a lot more attention and action. Similarly, it will be very critical to address adaptation, uh, loss and damage, and other resilience issues also that uh, vulnerable countries are facing as the Mm -hmm. very devastating climate impacts are growing. Now, 2020 was supposed to be the year when all countries submitted updated NDCs and finalized their long-term climate and development strategies. In a number of countries, because of COVID, 
this has been delayed and it has its own ripple effects. So far only 12 countries have submitted their NDCs and 16 countries have communicated their long-term strategy. So this year it is really critical to build momentum on strengthening ambition and I think the EU and a number of vulnerable countries are expected to come forward with their enhanced NDCs by the end of 2020. I think also there is a expectation of major emitters like US, China, India, and, and a question that how they will represent their commitments in terms of uh, stronger ambition and stronger climate action. And both are essential, urgency and ambition are essential. And we think that these countries will need to make right decisions on re rebooting economies in the wake of COVID-19, uh, COVID crisis also and by investing in green jobs and resilient infrastructure and by avoiding to bail out polluting industries unless those mm. industries will commit to carbon neutral goals and fossil fuel subsidies in particular, I think is extremely important. And from COP26, uh, I think climate negotiating sessions ahead of COP26, while the status of global pandemic and the health and safety of all participants will determine the UNFCC ability to convene in-person meetings, we understand that the UNFCC is considering several extra negotiating sessions in 2021 mm -hmm. to address some of the most political and sticking issues and therefore helping negotiators be in a good position to make concrete decisions in Glasgow. I think some of the very important negotiating issues will include negotiation on Article 6, on transparency on reporting tables, the common timeframes, the questions of finance that I mentioned earlier, and adaptation, yeah. loss and damages, and capacity building. I also want to talk about uh, the 2050 Pathways platform, and this was launched at uh, COP22. For those of you who don't know, the platform supports countries seeking to develop long-term net zero GHG, climate resilient and sustainable development pathways. It provides financial and technical assistance to those countries who have identified such needs. How successful has this program been? So WRI partnered with the 2050 Pathways platform on the long-term strategies project, which brings together major organizations worldwide, working with countries to develop their long-term strategies with the latest research and analysis, as well as in-country support. The 2050 Pathways platform is one of several organizations supporting countries to develop their long-term strategies. It has 30 country partners now, and it also serves as the Secretariat for the Carbon Neutrality Coalition, a group of about 30 pioneering countries, including Mexico, Canada, France, Germany, Japan, Korea, that are committed to net zero long-term strategy. And Platform is working with the Climate Ambition Alliance, the COP26 Presidency, and the High Level Climate Cham Champions Race to Zero campaign to drive both national and business action on net zero commitments through the Race to Zero campaign. 120 countries have joined these efforts, which is very impressive, I think, yeah. as well as nearly 500 yeah, yeah. city governments, 21 regions, 995 business, 38 of the biggest universities in more than 500 universities. We think that if done right, net zero targets could drive the emission reductions we need. WRI also released a new paper on designing net zero targets recently. And uh, mm -hmm. science-based target setting initiative is also going to publish new guidance on net zero targets for business soon. 
But with all this, the still the top 23 emitters, including China, US, India, they are not on this list of country partners for the 24 right. years. That is still very important that we see these countries also participate and step up their ambition. And we need to see that they also commit and ensure that their announcements will be turned into real action through well thought out plans and targets. Gosh, I really hope so. I really do hope so. I mean, if the three biggest emitters are choosing to be silent or just, it does not really bode well. But I'm still holding on to the, the hope that you talked about that there is still time and then that the countries will figure out in terms of leadership how best to go ahead. Can you comment on connections between COVID-19 and emissions? Do you think there have been any benefits from lockdowns happening globally or is it all very, very temporary and we're going to be back to business as usual? Yes. Even though we have some understanding of the impact of COVID-19 on emissions, we do not have very good systems in place to monitor global emissions in real time. CO2 emissions, for example, are reported as annual values, often released months or even years after the end of the calendar year. So what we can understand is only based on some proxy data, which is somewhat near real time or monthly intervals. So, for example, mm-hmm. fossil fuel use is estimated uh, for some countries at the monthly level and released a few months later. Then observations of CO2 concentration in the atmosphere are available in real time. But then there is also a natural variability of the carbon cycle and, for example, fires right now that are happening. So there is overall a lack of real-time CO2 emissions data. But nevertheless, a paper was published in Nature Climate Change in May with an alternative approach to estimate country-level emissions based on available daily data of activity, activity data for economic sectors. So the new analysis looks at emissions through April in 69 countries, 50 U.S. states and 30 Chinese provinces, which represent 85% of the world population and 97% of global CO2 emissions. The activity data shows that the changes in daily activities were biggest in the aviation sector, with a decrease in daily activity of reduction by 75% during this period. Surface transport saw activity reduced by 50%, whereas industry and public sectors saw their activity reduced by 35% and 33% respectively. Power sector saw its activity decreased by a modest 15% which is understandable as most people were staying home and using yeah. energy. And the residential activity sector actually saw its activity increase by 5%. Overall, the effect of the confinement was to decrease daily global CO2 emissions by 17%. So reduction of 17% by early April, relative to the average level of emissions in 2019. And for individual countries, the maximum daily decrease averaged to minus 26%. And the average and estimated decrease in daily fossil CO2 emissions from the confinement was 17% at its peak. And it mm-hmm. is unseen before. And still, when you look at this, uh, this will correspond to the emission rev- levels returning to the level in 2006. So... I think there is an opportunity because of uh, this crisis and now real responsibility is with the, I would say, country government leaders, leadership, business leadership. If the countries will use the 
economic stimulus spending, let's say, if to invest in polluting industries or coal or fossil fuel industries, then the world will be back where it started with emissions rising again year over year and the impact on global climate change as well as air pollution and other benefits that we see have seen will be only temporary. So while the opportunity has been presented to us, but how we respond to this opportunity will decide whether we are able to leverage this or whether we will actually bring the world back to even perhaps a worse position if we invest in fossil fuel industries and coal and polluting industries. One of our podcast guests who had come in earlier, he talked about this and he said, you know, when, when we had the previous pandemics, the bigger pandemics happening in the early 1900s, he said governments said, how best can we get people back in? And the easiest thing to use was the environment, right? And I really do hope that the governments and, and leadership in government actually go the green way in that sense, right? Uh, that would be really the ideal solution for us. But yeah, I think it, it's, all up in the air, unfortunately, at the moment. I also want to talk about uh, WRI, and WRI is in the process of setting up new standards, right, for GHG protocols to be processed by 2021. Can you shed some light on this, please? Right. So after some time now, we are starting the process of new global standards, and this is under Greenhouse Gas Protocol in partnership with WBCSD, uh, WRI launched the Greenhouse Gas Protocol, Carbon Removals and Land Sector Initiative in January of 2020, this year. The initiative will produce new standards and guidance for carbon removals and storage, land sector activities, and biogenic products. We expect that these standards will be useful for companies to inform key mitigation strategies and to ensure right incentives are in place because information data helps to inform strategies and incentives. And there is an accountability also component. And as companies, they set targets. If the targets are set in a right way, this will ensure that the targets themselves provide right incentives. And which very much depends on the fundamental basic framework. And these standards are very crucial as they pertain to the land sector which can serve as both sink and also a source of emission, depending on how we treat it. So we expect uh, this will take some time. As I mentioned earlier, standard development also, depending on the complexity of the standard, the significance of the issue, the involvement of uh, multiple stakeholders and range of stakeholders and, and the range of views, it takes a longer time. It may take us three to four years to complete the standard. Right now, there is no guidance on how to incorporate land sector impacts and greenhouse gas removal activities, including not just uh, biological removals, but also geological removals, carbon capture and storage. Right. How do you incorporate that in greenhouse gas inventories and, and targets? There is no common approach Companies do not have methods for accounting for them. And that limits opportunities to reduce emissions and meet GHG targets. In terms of the process, we have, uh, similar to our basic methodology in terms of the process, we have set up uh, three technical working groups and one advisory committee and a peer review group. And when we are ready for pilot testing, there will be a pilot group also set up. 
more than 100 expert members in the three technical working groups are right now working to develop the new standards and guidance. Review group presently has about 200 members, but it continues to grow as it is open for audience, the stakeholders to participate and, and join. And we expect that when we are ready for the review group, it may be 500 to 1,000 members who will be invited to the peer review of the draft standard. Looking at land use emissions, I'm interested in knowing, are you doing pioneering work in that sense? I mean, is this something that's done and or, or is it something that you're looking at with new perspectives? I just want to understand a little bit more about that because clearly it was not been done before. You talked about companies don't seem to have standardized ways to do this. So I'm just curious to know a little bit more about that. Yes, I think the greenhouse gas protocol work is, I wouldn't say it's uh, creating new methodologies as such. In most cases, the quantification methodologies are already there. Right. Even in the land sector, there, there are IPCC methodologies. There are several other initiatives that have provided very good methodologies for quantification of greenhouse gas emissions and removals uh, related to forest and agriculture sector. Now, what the GHG protocol does is it adds a layer of reporting and accountability, which provides guidance on what are some of the minimum common reporting categories that we would expect all companies will account for and report. It ensures then some measure of uh, consistency in reporting. Mm -hmm. And also it provides a structure that aligns reporting with incentives and drivers for reporting. So the, the reporting itself can have multiple objectives. Just simple reporting in itself is a goal to increase transparency for public information. But then there are many other internal corporate objectives that could be served by a proper reporting practice. And then there are target setting practices, science-based target, for example, it would need uh, yeah. commonly accepted methods. And so, so what greenhouse gas protocol does is it builds on the existing best methodologies and best practices. Right. And then it adds to them a layer of a corporate accounting and reporting framework that allows the information to be properly categorized, structured into different scopes that allows a level of accuracy, completeness, consistency, and in particular with the forest and with the land sector, there is a principle of permanence. It is very different from other sectors that here when we account for, let's say removals from mm -hmm. agriculture forest sector practice, then how do you decide what is exactly a removal, whether a temporary removal, what is a temporary removal, what is a permanent removal? So those are questions we need to have common answers, commonly accepted answers. And so the additional work of GHG protocol, one is technical convergence, where we, we converge on a certain set of technical accounting principles and methodologies and objectives. And then there is a political purpose where we achieve consensus across a diverse body of stakeholders, including business, mm -hmm. NGOs, civil society groups, policy makers and representatives, and researchers and experts. So those are broadly speaking four 
distinct sets of stakeholder groups who all we try to bring together and to ensure that there's a common understanding in terms of what kind of uh, rules that everybody would follow in ensuring a yeah. complete accounting and reporting. So this is the value addition and contribution of GAG protocol, but we do build on existing research and methodologies. Thank you for that clarification. So my second last question to you is about carbon neutrality. How do we accomplish this? And is this a pipe dream? There might be some emissions which you can't avoid. So how can countries compensate for those? Right. So first and foremost, human cause emissions like those from fossil fuel vehicles and factories, they should be reduced as close to zero as possible. And any remaining greenhouse gas emissions would then need to be balanced with an equivalent amount of carbon removal, for example, by restoring forest or through direct air capture and storage technology. So that is the basic principle. Now, the latest IPCC science suggests that to meet the Paris Agreement's uh, temperature goals, the world will need to reach net zero emissions in a timeline that looks something like this. In scenarios that limit warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade, carbon dioxide emissions should reach net zero on average by 2050 to 2052. In two degree scenarios, CO2 emissions should reach net zero on average by 2070 to 2085. And total GHG emissions should reach net zero by the end of the century. So this is the basic scientific background. And now I think to your point, whether it's a pipe dream or whether we will be able to reach, (laughs) I think, first of all, I, I would argue that we should really aim and you might say it is even a bigger pipe dream, but I would still argue that the world should really aim to reach net zero emissions a decade sooner. That is by 20. 40, so that we don't take any risk. I think that we cannot really take any risk here. And we do not want to try to meet the deadline just in time here. So my argument is that we should really reach net zero emissions by 2040. The sooner we peak, the lower we will be at that point. And the more realistic it will be, then we achieve net zero in time. And we would also want to rely less on carbon removal in the second half of the century. Our analysis has shown that the most cost-effective and lowest risk strategy, particularly for building out carbon removal capacity, will involve developing and deploying a variety of approaches. For example, restoring forests, better farming practices to restore soil carbon, developing bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, uh, direct air capture, carbon remineralization, and ocean-based carbon removal like seaweed cultivation. We must start working on all these approaches now. This is also, I think, the time to begin investing in research and development and demonstration and early stage deployment of these current approaches as well as new potential technologies and approaches that then become viable well in time so that those can be adopted at scale in the coming decades. Finally, I think important that countries start to set targets for all their emissions, mm. not just CO2. For non-CO2 emissions, also the net zero date, and the, even though it is later, such as methane from agriculture sources, because they're somewhat more difficult to phase out. But these are very potent short-lived gases, which will drive temperature higher in the near term and will potentially push temperature change past the 1.5 degree much earlier if we do not control them in time. So we have to also focus on non-CO2 gases. 
So overall, I think it may appear to be a pipe dream, but I think countries <laughs> can do spirit should really inform the development of long-term strategies and with very clear and specific national plans, sectoral plans, so five-year interval plans, which also makes NDC very important. So really, this has to be a blueprint that should be prepared by all countries now, a long-term blueprint. And then the question is that how much that blueprint will also drive investment and decisions in different countries and sectors. So that's where my hope is. You've really set out a blueprint in that sense, right? I really like the, the way you've described the whole process. And I really do hope that governments are listening to all the suggestions being made to them. And that's such an important thing to, to leave something for future generations to not have the planet grow that form where we can't handle living literally on, on surfaces. So I really do hope that whatever you've talked about uh, does come true in that sense. So my last question then is, You've given me the blueprint already. So how do we look at tackling climate change? Is it really only governments that can resolve it? And then what is your call of action to our listeners? I think we need both government as well as common public, so to speak. Mm -hmm. and, and I would say government, not just government, we need leaders at, at all levels in all key sectors of the economy. So government does play a very important role. But solving the climate crisis, as we also have seen, it depends on changing really basic human behavior, changing our basic consumption patterns and lifestyles. It also depends on technological and policy innovation and on very robust climate and also economic policies. So I've spoken quite a lot about climate change and how we have to be successful, particularly in the context of net zero targets and IPCC projections, both for 1.5 degree and 2 degree. Now, I want to add to that perspective that how we become successful on achieving our climate goals, I think very much depends on what kind of economic policies uh, countries will follow, particularly in developing countries, where they also have to tackle the problem of poverty. They also have to tackle the problem of hunger, health issues, mm. and access to energy, and just some basic human development needs. And I think that it will be very difficult for politicians in, in democracies to make a case to public to direct investments into climate solutions if that occurs at the cost of these basic services and basic human needs. If those investments would mean that, for example, the energy cost will increase for people, and that will reduce access to energy for particularly poor section of the society, I don't think those solutions will work. And so in all cases, I think in all cases of climate change uh, policies, countries will need to look into, particularly in developing countries, the social and economic elements of those policies and how to fine tune climate change policies in such a way that they will also achieve the critical social and economic objectives of the country. Otherwise, uh, those policies will not be properly implemented or executed or adopted, in, and that is my concern. So we have to address those issues as well, but how do you do them and how do you leverage some of the opportunities that are presenting, for example, in the context of COVID recovery, 
there, there are opportunities mm-hmm. being presented and governments can really leverage them. And for example, in India, I believe uh, India's prime minister spoke about climate change as a key future challenge in announcing the largest economic recovery package in, in independent India's history. And that is aimed at strengthening the country's supply chains through the private sector and public sector participation to make the country more self-reliant. And also the Niti Aayog has said that prioritizing clean energy will be a major driver of India's economic recovery and international competitiveness. So that is the view I think that has to be coupled that even economic recovery and economic competitiveness now very much depends on ensuring climate change problem is addressed effectively. If you just look at, for example, the air pollution situation in in some parts of northern India, unless the air pollution problem is handled, I don't think India and particularly those areas will become a very attractive region to attract capital from leading uh, private sector companies from the world to come and invest in, and set up their operations in those areas because they would not perhaps want to expose their staff and employees to such air pollution level. And so I think the economic competitiveness is very much now linked to solving environmental and climate problems, mm-hmm. and they have to be tackled together. And I hope that leadership across all levels, and not just government, but business and researchers and civil society groups and all other leadership will focus on addressing climate change and environmental issues as a need for ensuring that future generations will also prosper in the way that they have prospered so far in the world. So they have to think about what kind of legacy they will leave and whether future generations will see them as failed leadership or as leadership that succeeded and ensure that there is also a world for future generations to prosper and succeed. I like this point you made about legacy. And really, thank you so very much. I have learned so much today. I'm sure our listeners have as well about the work that you've been doing. And it really, it does sound like an amazing amount of effort to give us something that we can actually build on and you know rely on to look at how emissions are in that sense. So thank you very much, Pankaj. I really appreciate the time you've given us. Thank you very much again. And thank you so much for this opportunity, Kirti. I also enjoyed it very much. I also want to mention that a lot of team members contributed and helped me in preparing these points. And your questions were great. Very good questions. And thanks for this opportunity. Thank you so much.